trust in him, say amen. 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 Please be seated. Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who's given you the bread out of, it is Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is, if we didn't know better, we'd say, if you back up to 26, you say, Jesus is getting frustrated here. He's saying the same thing over and over, and they just apparently aren't getting it. Um, and if and if we were listening to Jesus uh, as a salesman, and we read thirty two and thirty three, we'd say he's awfully slick because he's done a, a he's done he's done magic here with the with the words um, to not confuse us, uh, but to make a stark contrast. Not to, not to communicate the shadow of Moses, you know, the shadow uh, that becomes a mystery. It's not that. That's not what's going on here. This is a very sharp contrast between that which fell out of heaven, the bread out of heaven, versus the bread of God. Uh, that's, not a, that's not an incidental or, or a, a, a insignificant change in language there. God is simply saying that manna that it was dropping out of heaven... Yes, it was emblematic uh, of me, um, but it was you're, that's what you're chasing. You're still chasing that same thing to fill your gut with. And he's saying, you need to chase me. And so he goes on in the passage. So with that, I would encourage you, fill your gut with him. Let me invite you to turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. We're going to wrap this section up. Malachi, chapter 3. Um, this morning, we are talking about the very tail end, 17 and 18, as you'll see labeled the benefits. And in essence, that flow from re, uh, repentance. In essence, therefore, 17 through 18 becomes not only a description of the benefits that come when you and I repent, but it now becomes the, an argument for why you should repent. Why um, it is better to live a life of serving God than serving self. And so this really is a, uh, a defense, an apologia, a, uh, an apologetical argument for why we should repent, even though that's the only time I'm going to mention it right now. Um, but that's what we're looking at uh, today. Um, this is God's Word, 13 through, 7, uh, through 18. Let me encourage you to stand together with me as we read this portion of the book of Malachi. Hear now the word of Christ. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against thee? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but those who test God or they test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And And a book of remembrance was written before him 
for those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. For they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for the food that is before us, O Lord, the food that came down from heaven. Um, Lord, not from the um, atmosphere, but from Your very presence. That, Lord, uh, walked amongst us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Lord, we praise You for the bread that is before us. And as has been exhorted, God, may we now seek that bread. Seek to consume that bread this day. Your Word says, Your Word was found and I ate it, and it became for me the joy and the delight of my heart. Lord, we pray for nothing less this morning that we would participate in the, in the eating and the consuming of a meal this morning. That meal being Jesus Christ. God bless this time towards that end. Give me grace to preach with fidelity. And Lord, by your Spirit, Holy Spirit, please grant us eyes to see and ears to hear that we genuinely would feast this day upon you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Very early in the Theocracy, 845 B.C. to be exact, God gave this promise to the people of God if they repented. Listen to it. He says, And the Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. A hundred years later, roughly a hundred years later, God gave this assurance to His people if they repented. Habakkuk, I'm sorry, Hosea. And it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil and will respond to Jezreel. Now, the, the, the three names of Hosea's children are Jezreel, which referred to the bloodbath that occurred with, with um, um, Jezebel. And then Loami, lo, not my people, and lo ru, Ruhamah, which means no uh, compassion. Notice what God says. They're going to respond to the new wine, to the oil. They will respond to Jezreel. And Jezreel, the root means to um, sow seed. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had no compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, thou art my God. Then 125 years later, during the day of Jeremiah, God gave this promise to those who would repent. Jeremiah 31. And they shall come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain, over the new wine, over the oil, over the young of the flock and the the herd. And their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. The point in these verses, and there are many more, is simply this, that brothers and sisters, repentance, the life of repentance, is a good thing. Not only does it glorify God, Joshua 7.19, but brothers and sisters, as we just saw, as I just read, as we'll see this morning, it comes with it many tangible benefits for God's people. The life of repentance brings with it many, many glorious benefits that are ours in Christ on account of repentance. 
Now, the passage before us this morning, the tail end of that, gives us three of those benefits. I want to recall with you this context here. Malachi was written in the valley. It's important you understand that. Um, God, throughout His... In fact, the Bible is filled. Everything you have written here is written during these glorious moments in, in God's covenantal redemptive history wherein God dumps revelation and dumps um, miracles and prophecies and the whole bit upon God's people. And it's easy to read the Bible and to think that this is characteristic of the entire redemptive history of God. And what you find when you read the Bible closely is that is not the case. That God gave these glorious dumpings, these glorious revelation during specific moments. And then you'll have 400 plus years of complete silence. What we read is typically during these glorious revelations, glorious dumpings. So we think of this time, of these times of, of, of miracles and prophecies and, and um, glorious um, uh, declarations on the part of God. And yet, brothers and sisters, most of redemptive history was lived in the valley. And that is where Malachi is written. Malachi is the very tail end of a time of revelation. For the next 400 plus years, there would be complete and total silence. For the last 150 years, there had been almost complete and total silence. And so God's people in Malachi's day are living in a time of um, boredom, a time where the heart easily can grow cold. In fact, if we were to, to identify a theme verse of every valley between these redemptive proclamations, the theme verse I would suggest would be John 20, 29, where Jesus said to them, because you have seen me, you have, you have believed. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. That's the theme verse. Blessed are those who do not see. You don't see miracles. You don't see prophecy. You don't see prophets walking around. You don't see God's Shekinah glory uh, coming upon the temple. They're not seeing that. But blessed are you who believe who have not seen. God knew that these valleys have been and would be. That's where we live too. That's why I love Malachi so much. Malachi is written for you and me. As, as, as all of God's word is, but specifically people living in the valley, not on top of mountains where God is so close and so near. It's written during times of, of gloom and it, it's written for a people living in these difficult times where the heart is prone to go cold. Where, Luke 18, Christ warns us, however, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Brothers and sisters, He knows from the first advent to the second there would be this time of um, this valley time where there would be uh, no prophets, no miracles, none of this that you see in these high redemptive moments. And so he gave the following exhortation to us, Romans 13, 12, The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. Wake up serve God. Brothers and sisters, that's the exhortation found throughout Malachi. Malachi is written in the valley, written for people in the valley, written to a people whose heart had grown cold. And you and I both know from looking at Malachi that there are six typical errors into which you and I will fall into when our hearts grow cold. 
The first error is we compromise the pulpit. The second, we compromise worship. The third, we compromise the body life of the body. Fourthly, we question God's justice. Fifthly, we become very earthbound. Everything that we think of in Christianity is interpreted by this side of the grave. Very earthbound. And now this last area of exhortation, six different pericopes, six different prophecies, six different um, statements on the part of God through Malachi addressing these six different things. This last one revolves around um, our propensity with cold hearts to question God, to question his character, to question his conduct, to question what he's doing. And so God came in this section and gave an exhortation to his people with regards to that very thing. But what makes our last section, this last section unique, which is why I've spent so much time on it, is we have here a declaration of God's people's response. The rest of Malachi, we haven't had a response. We just get these beautiful statements. Okay, hey, don't judge God by feeble sins. Hey, don't compromise with the pulpit. Got it, got it, got it, got it. But in our section, we've got verses 16 through 18 as part of the last oracle. We've got a declaration of genuine believers repenting and turning to God at this time. There's much to learn from them um, about life in the valley. And so this morning, we've looked at already 16th uh, um, last week and, and the elements of repentance. They, they repented. They turned. What is it that was, uh, constituted what they, they did? Now we're going to look at 17 through 18 and look at the benefits that these men and women re- reaped and enjoyed because they, they, they turned not from a sin, that is repentance, but as much more, they turned from self. From a life of self-dependence, a life of self-discovery, a life where I view the world through my eyes and my perspective is the right one, and God is held accountable to my view, I'm turning from self to God. And when they did that, three things resulted. Would you notice the first one? One, they, they enjoyed intimacy with God. An intimacy that they did not have prior to repentance. Notice with me verse 17. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day, I will prepare my own a possession. Look at the language. Look at that verse. It's the language of intimacy. Two different expressions. Let me define them for you. First, they will be mine. This, if you know much of the Bible, you know this is a major theme of God's redeeming program for his people. Okay, it began all the way back in, in Abraham's day where God approached Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And he goes on and on and on. God in Genesis 12 chose Abraham and his descendants, his spiritual descendants, to be his people. God says, you will be mine. And with this, This began this incredible theme which is repeated throughout Scripture. This incredible truth. They will be mine. That's a major plank of the Gospel. Listen to Leviticus 26.12. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Exodus 6.7 That I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you will know that I am the Lord your God. 
It's, it's just repeated. Jeremiah 20 or 30. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers and you will be my people and I will be your God. Brothers and sisters, we go on and on and on. In fact, I had quite a few more verses, but realized time I should just stop there. Right? Think of why did Jesus Christ come to, to save his people, God's people, my people from their sin. It just goes throughout it all. That's the gospel. But what is this statement? What is meant by you will be mine? Is this simply the statement that, that you will be my possession as if I own you? What is this? Another uh, question that we have to ask, verse 17, look at it again. Upon the repentance, God says, and they will be mine. Does that mean that if we don't repent, we will not be God's? We will not, this statement will not be true of us? Is that possible? Well, we know, practically speaking, positionally speaking, that is completely false. That God owning us, possessing, is not based upon anything that we do. You did not choose me, John 15, 16 says. I chose you. Deuteronomy 9, 6, before we, um, God, God did not choose us because we were uh, righteous. No, we are a, a rebellious people. He saved us because it pleased Him. So we know this statement, you will be mine, is not predicated upon, positionally, you will be God's people, is not predicated upon our repentance. Um, daily repentance, that's what we're, we're talking about here. It's not predicated upon that. Um, well, then why does it say that? Why does it make it sound like it's predicated upon it? Because you will be mine has two facets to it in Scripture. The first represents, or the, the first reflects the fact that we become the possession of God. That's what a saint is, by the way. Okay? When we talk about, you know, written to the saints, saints are, are set-apart ones, ones who God claimed in, as his own. That's what a saint is. So if you're saved, you're a saint. And you became a saint not because of anything you did, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's because of what God did. Okay, so now you become God's, but now, now that you've become God's uh, possession, what does that mean? Is it just simply mean you're part of God's, you know, God's claimed you? No. Let me ask you this. You live in the mountains, the forest fire is coming. And you've got no less than 10 minutes to, to, to get out of that home because it's, it's, it's coming fast. Which means you've got 10 minutes to claim one, one or two or three items from your house. What do you claim? What do you choose? Right? I'm going to choose some Cheerios. You know? <laughs> a good box of Cheerios. What, what are you going to choose? I'm going to cha- choose those dirty socks in the laundry. No, I guarantee you this. Whatever you claimed as yours would be valuable to you, would be irreplaceable to you, would be the most important things in that house to you. Maybe a picture, right? Maybe a keepsake that your grandmother gave you or your mom. Who knows? But it'd be something of high value to you, of incredible value to you. Brothers and sisters, think about what this means when God says, you will be mine. Think of the, the universe. Two, over 200 billion galaxies. Each galaxy having over 200 billion planets and stars. And of all of that, a fire is going to take place. Literally. Read Second Peter. A fire is going to take place and destroy it all. And God has one chance to choose what he's... One chance will be wrong, but... Um, in, the, in my story here, God is, is, is the one going to claim what he wants. Guess what he chose? Of all of the universe, he chose you. 
Think about that. Meditate on that. He chose you to take you from the fire to himself. Now with that, therefore, that this being God, his choice, brings with it intimacy with you, with God. He didn't choose you as a master slave. He didn't choose you as a deity, peon, uh, you know, um, what's the word, amoeba. No, we know the heart of God is a, is a heart of relationship. He chose you to fellowship with Him. Do you see that, brothers and sisters, in the verse I read at the very beginning, the verses, Hosea 2, I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, Thou art my God. That's the corollary of God saying, I am yours, or you, you are mine. We respond with, and I am yours, God. I love you. You are the most important thing to me. Intimacy with God. In fact, brothers and sisters, it is this that ultimately is lost when we choose sin over God. Do you realize that? What you and I lose experientially when we choose sin over God, death over life, we lose this intimacy. Listen to Psalm 106.13, speaking of God's people following uh, the Exodus. They soon forgot His work They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. What was the result of them seeking death? It wasn't that they lost their salvation. It's that they lost their well-being. They lost the intimacy, the communion they enjoyed with God, the experiential communion. Psalm 32.3, after David committed his sin with Bathsheba, what was lost in that king's life? When you read um, in Samuel, Nathan coming up and rebuking David, what was David like before he was rebuked? Was he happy? Was he thrilled for his sin? Did his sin give him everything and, uh, and all that he ever dreamt of? Psalm 32 says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. What did David's love and lust for sin cost him in his walk with God? Not his salvation. It cost him his, the intimacy he had with God. Now, rather than enjoying God, his heart is heavy. In fact, after he repents, he, he pens Psalm 51. Listen to some of the key phrases. Notice, he doesn't say, oh Lord, Lord restore my salvation. What does he say? Verse um, 8. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. It's relational. Do not cast me away from thy presence. Recall Psalm 16 says, on thy presence is fullness of joy. Do not take away my joy. Do not cast me from your presence. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. Brothers and sisters, that's the focus of this phrase, this redemptive uh, phrase throughout Scripture. You will be mine is a declaration that God has deigned not only to call you as His own, our position, but also to walk with you, to commune with you, and you with Him. Think about that. Fellowshipping, communing, talking with God Almighty on a daily moment-by-moment basis. That's what we get in repentance. A restoration of this glorious relationship with God. 
Notice the next phrase. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day when I, that I prepare my own possession. The word for possession there is the word for a treasure, a priceless treasure. And the word for prepare speaks of, and by priceless treasure, we're talking jewels. So this word uh, um, a possession can be uh, in reference to a costly, priceless jewel. And the word for prepare speaks of the cutting and polishing process of a jewel. Okay, so notice, God, is, God has, uh, has said, you're mine, and because you're mine, I'm going to polish you and perfect you. And what's the end of God's polishing work in the life of a Christian? What is it? Okay, well, if you look at Scripture, the rest of Scripture, what you find is that end is a restoration of intimacy with God. It's the same thing. Listen to Hosea 2, speaking of his people in rebellion. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them was acted shamefully. For she, God's people, said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and water, my wool, my flax, and my oil, and my drink. Man, sin is amazing, and I want it. I don't need God. I want my, my sin. So what does God do? He prepares the possession. He, he disciplines them. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths to her sin. And she will, be, and she will pursue her lovers. Notice that phrase. Pursue her lovers, mark that, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, mark that, but she will not find them. She pursues her lovers, she seeks her lovers, her sins. God says, she's, she's not going to get that. I'm not going to let her. Then she will say, because of my preparing of this glorious treasure, my discipline and grace, then she will say, I will go back to my first husband. Implication, I will seek him. I will pursue him as my lover. Rather than sin, I will pursue God. This becomes explicit in Hosea 3, uh, speaking of his re rebellious people whom, whom he just brought back through his dis uh, discipline and grace. Um, this is what we read. Then God said to her, this, uh, the wife of Hosea, Gomer, the prostitute, after he bought her on the slave uh, trade, he, or, you know, she was a, a, a slave, so he buys her back. You shall stay with me for many days. This is the heart of God for you and me in repentance. You're going to be with me. You will not play the harlot, nor will you have a man. You're not going to have more sin. I also will be, I'll be the man. I'll be the delight, the joy that you're looking for. That, you know, those empty cisterns that can hold no water. I'm going to be that cistern that, 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 that holds, I'll be that bubbling brook that gives you life. So I will be towards you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king, prince, without sacrifice, sacred pillar, and without ephod or household, say exile there. And afterward, the son of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God. Brothers and sisters, this has always been and always will be the end of God's disciplining grace. It's that you and I might have a restored fellowship with God, an intimacy with the Lord that our sin deprives us of. That's what God's after. And you will find in Scripture, if there's anything that should motivate us when it comes to seeking God, it's this thing. God here is parading before His people the carrot, the most important. And that is we get to be, enjoy this I am yours relationship, you are mine relationship with God. It's what always motivates us, should motivate us. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the poor or the pure in heart, they shall see God. Who are the ones who have this deep and abiding relationship with God where they behold Him? Brothers and sisters, those who have turned from their self unto God. 
Why should you and I turn from sin? What passing pleasure do you think can compete with fellowshipping with Almighty God? Right? That's what the motive is. That's why we read Scripture. That's why we, we, we um, study. That's why we have fe- a quiet times. Because we want to not check off, but because we want to fellowship with God. That's the height of it. Proverbs 14, 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. What's evoked in your mind by a fountain of life? Man, it's, it's not living in a barren land. It's, it's, it's living in a barren land, but being filled Think of the tree transplanted by streams of water that extends its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves are green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought. Why? Because they've got God. And that's the, the picture here. Isaiah 58, I'm going to skip that, uh, that. You can read it, brothers and sisters. It describes the incredible consequence of you and I turning from ourselves to enjoy God. And what will be the results I'm going to read? I'm going to read halfway through. Then you will take delight in the Lord. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That is the reason why you and I want to repent. That is the benefit, the first benefit that comes from repentance. We get God. He said, but I'm a Christian. I already have God. Yeah, but are you enjoying God? Our chief end is to glorify in what? Enjoy Him. Are you enjoying Christ? His person. What He's done. How He views you. What He thinks of you. Do you enjoy Him? Do you walk with Him in the cool of of the day? Or is He this this far off deity that you, you read God's Word because that's what you're supposed to do? Brothers and sisters, if that's where you are, your heart is cold just like God's people in Malachi. Be careful because soon your worship will, comp- will be compromised and your view of God will be compromised and on and on and on. No, brothers and sisters, God created you that you might enjoy Him. And one of the first glorious benefits of turning from self back to God is that we get as our consolation and prize Jesus Christ. That's what we we get. Now, this is progressive. 17 through 18, each, there's three points. Each one of these builds to the next. Now that you have this, now that you go, wow, I've got this intimacy with God. You know what happens when you have that intimacy with God? Secondly, brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm skipping those quotes. You can read them. You have security in relationship with God. Notice with me, 17b. They would be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Once again, the word prepare talks about discipline. So we're talking here about God disciplining his people. You're going to be mine, and that glorious relationship is going to be fostered and encouraged through discipline, through preparing his, uh, um, his uh, possession, his, his treasure. Now notice, he, he now qualifies. What, what, what are you talking about, God? Second phrase, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. This is so beautiful. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that one of the proofs of your salvation this day is God's disciplining hand? Think about that. You don't believe that. I know you don't because God's people, Malachi's did, didn't believe that. We don't believe that. Because we're so earthbound, we're so um, biased in our view of God, we view Him based upon our value system, 
you and I go through difficult times and what do we go? What do we say? God, what have I done wrong? Why are you so mean to me? Why have you forsaken me? If you love me, what? Fill it in. Fill it in. Every one of you right now are facing mountains. If you love me, God, this would change. Right? I'd get that job. If you love me, God, I'd get, I'd get healthy. If you love me, God, I'd get that money. I'd get, name it. If you love me, God, I'd get. And brothers and sisters, that is earthbound thinking. It's where God's people were in Malachi's day. Do you know what God's Word says? Very clear. If you are without God's preparing His possession, if you're without discipline, you are an illegitimate child. Hebrews 12, you know the text quite well. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Skip to verse 8. In fact, if you are without discipline, of which we all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Brothers and sisters, God's people in Malachi's day, we know that's the, the, this is the context. Look with me back at verse 15. Okay, so now we call the arrogant blessed. So they're... They're now saying, this is what this is, this is the overflow of, of our observation of how God treats his own people. Okay? It's a comparison here. How God treats the wicked and how he treats his own people. To the wicked, why? They're blessed. <laughs> to the wicked, why? They have everything they could ever want. Right? They've got it. They're, they're, they're blessed. Um, the, the doers of wickedness, they're built up. And they test God and escape. So brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter whether you sin or not. God blesses them. But for his people, the contrast couldn't be more black and white. Um, Instead of blessing, God curses his people. Um, He doesn't build up the doers of um, righteousness. He tears them down. Implication. And lastly, verse uh, uh, 15, uh, God doesn't doesn't allow those to escape whom he puts to the test. God pays back double for their sin. That's the implication of 15. That's what they were struggling with. They're criticizing God's goodness. So you naturally, you and I naturally believe, get this, you and I were born believing that love will always translate to my happiness, my blessing, my whatever I want. Brothers and sisters, if you're fattening a pig for slaughter, what do you do? If you want the best tasting veal in the world, what do you do with a baby cow? Right? You treat it like a king and you feed it anything and everything, the best of the foods. Okay, when you, when, 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 when you and I prepare things to be eaten for slaughter, we treat it kindly. But if you and I want to get stronger muscles, we tear down our bodies. Micro tears, micro fractures of our bones. When you and I want to learn and grow, we, we have to, right? It takes discipline and struggle. Brothers and sisters, that's the age in which we live. And God's word is very clear. Secondly, if you are without discipline, or better yet, if you're his child, and now you have this intimacy with God, God is going to continue to rock your world. Why? Because he has this vendetta against happiness? No. Because he has the end game in mind, and that end game is not on this side of the grave. His end game is you and I walking with him in paradise. 
And he knows, therefore, everything and anything that you go through on this side of the grave is necessary to prepare you for the conversation and the fellowship and the glory and the delight and the worship you're going to offer to him in glory. When you understand that, wow, it changes everything on this side of the grave. But yet, would you notice, brothers and sisters, that word spare? I want you to see, yes, God is going to discipline those he loves. But would you know that discipline is only what is necessary in order to, to, to produce what is, what is God's, God and your desire. And that is your enjoying of God. The word spare. It's from a courtroom. So the picture here from this word is this. You're the judge. And you have the unfortunate job to judge your child. Your child is brought before you. The charges are read, and there's two things you're going to do as a judge. You're going to render judgment, and then you're going to um, sentence them. If you're going to be, a, as a father or a mother, judging your child, everything within you wants to say, not guilty, but justice, if you're a just judge, or we ought to be, you have to be. So it's not going to be, sparing your son is not on the, the judgment part, guilty. It's on the sentence. Because in that day, as it is in our day, there's quite a broad spectrum as to what you have as a judge that you can, that you can sentence someone to. Time served all the way to execution, right? Same way in that day. And that is where this, this word spare comes into play. Look at the phrase again. Okay, God will. He says, they will be mine, says uh, the Lord, on the day that I prepare my uh, possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son. In other words, I'm only going to give what is necessary for this child to learn what he needs to learn. I'm going to spare them. There's going to be mercy, compassion in my disciplining grace. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The word temptation in the Greek simply means trial. Okay? Let me read it. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be Tempted, tested, tried, tempered, beyond what you're able. In other words, he only gives you what is necessary. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Secondly, brothers and sisters, the glorious benefit that comes from repentance is this glorious security knowing because I'm where the Malachi people were, because I'm in the valley, because life is hard, and because the, the going's rough, Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, that's a glorious testimony of His value of you and me. What parent is there who will not discipline their child that they might be everything they could possibly be? If they, if they don't, you say that parent doesn't love them. That's what God does for you. Incredible benefit of repentance. Continued discipline grace. You go, really? Yeah, because think of, for example, probably was it uh, I'm going blank on it now. Uh, um, Psalm 25, 4 and 5, maybe. No, that's not it. Think of the many passages in Scripture where God says one way He deals with His people's sins is He is He lets them, He gives them free reign to their sin. Think about that. You and I don't want that. We want to be disciplined. We want to be all disciplined for the moment is not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, man, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So we want it. So a second benefit of repentance is that God no longer lets us free reign to our sin. No, He gives us discipline. That's security, brothers 
And then lastly, the climax is found in verse 18, contentment. Because we're seeking Christ more than life. Oh, the intimacy is restored. And we're being disciplined, and we know it, and that's great because we're going to work with that discipline in the, in the words of the Puritans. We're going to improve upon our suffering so that we love Christ even more. Man, that's great. Thirdly, it leads to a life of contentment. Notice with me verse 18. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and wicked, between those who serve God, that's the righteous, and those who do not serve Him, that's the wicked. So we're talking here about absolutes. Wicked here are not... Uh, um, Backslidden Christians. These are non-believers. These are people who, who do not serve God. And the, the, the righteous are the ones who do. Now we have a, a question here. Whether or not we're talking about the righteous, discerning between righteous and wicked people or righteous and wicked ways. And the, and the answer is it's righteous and wicked ways. Okay, You're going to be able to discern. The word discern means judge. It means to evaluate. And be able to see clearly, this is right, this is wrong. Okay, so you and I, the, the culmination of repentance is it, it clears our eyes, clears our brains so that we can discern the right way and the wrong way of life on this earth. Okay, that's again the context, verse 15. They're criticizing God and has treatment of the wicked because their way is so easy. So if you're wicked, what do you get? An easy life. If you're righteous, what do you get? A hard life. So God's people at this point were discerning that the wicked way was the better way. That's what they're doing. So God says, you know what the culmination is? You're not going to be able to see reality aright, and we will no longer envy the wicked. It's a problem that you and I have as God's people. Asaph had it, Psalm 73. You recall those words. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in the death, their bodies fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long. Look at Christians, we're stricken. What a, what a wasted life. Look at the wicked, man, they get an easy life. I'm envious of those people. And you know what? God's people are oftentimes, during this valley time, they can come to that point where they go, I'd rather, you know what? I'd rather be wicked. Because look at their easy life. You know, it seems as though all they get is they get everything that they want in God's people if they're sold cheaply. As we, we've seen, brothers and sisters, this comes as the result of you and I living by sight, walking by sight and not by faith, right? The other reason we conclude this is because we're not seeing the big picture. But if you and I come to the temple of the Lord, Psalm 73, 16, when I pondered to understand this, says Asaph, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. There I perceived it. And when we come into the sanctuary of God, when God through re repentance puts our focus back upon God and we see that, you know what life's about? It's God. It's us serving God and God preparing us to, for the end games, the glorious time where we'll be with God in the new heavens and the new earth, not of this world. That's what life's about here. And when you and I put that as our greatest glorious, our, our greatest goal, what happens? It changes what we value on this side of the grave. Because, brothers and sisters, what is the end of the wicked? What is it? Matthew 25. With sobriety, read these words. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, 
and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the th- on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, and the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and you know what, we're going to enter into glory. Then, verse 41, he will also say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I would insist is that's the end. If you and I are gazing upon God, you and I walk with God as deep and pure because of repentance, and we're now realizing, wow, we are most people to be envied. Why? Because God's disciplining us. Wow, blessed are those who are, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're to be envied because in the process, God's tempering us. Do you know what that, what that results in? Our ability to look at the non-believers, the wicked, who we in our earthbound Christianity envy, to look at them and say, they're not the envy of me. Let me ask you something as I wrap this up. How many of you, if I showed you a snapshot of a guy in a really small room, white walls, the shadow of bars on the ground, eating the most costly, best slice of meat, $200 per pound. I forget what it's called, but it's, it's what kings and queens eat. He's eating. How many of you would envy that man knowing that's his last meal? Right, he's going to be executed right after that meal. Would you envy that guy? Oh, man. But I wouldn't give to be in that cell eating that food right now. I would love it. Who cares about that? You know, the next hour. Give me that stick. You wouldn't say. How many of you envy the young child? All expenses paid vacation to Italy through Make a Wish Foundation. Have you ever envied and said, "Oh, I wish I could have cancer. I wish when I was a kid I, I got cancer just like." We don't. Why don't we do that? Because we see the end. We pity, we feel sorry, we pray for, we plead for, uh, for them. But brothers and sisters, we don't envy them. Why? Because we know their end. Why is it any different for you and me when it comes to the wicked? It's because you and I, in our sinfulness, when we turn our backs upon God, our hearts grow cold. When in our cold hearts, we say, man, we are become very earthbound and all we can see is just the present, the, the three feet in front of us. Brothers and sisters, the glorious benefit of repentance is all of a sudden God gives us this glorious spotlight that goes all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. And then we get to live like Hebrews 12 or Hebrews 11 as God's people who were not looking for a kingdom of this world, but had set their gaze, their focus upon where that spotlight was shining, the new heavens and new earth, whose maker and builder is not of this world. Wow, brother, that's what makes us. So why should you choose the life of repentance? Because brothers and sisters, it's life. And this life is described in three ways. Intimacy with God, security in knowing that we are God's by His disciplining grace. And the glorious contentment which enables us to look upon wicked people and say, you know what? I don't want their money. Let goods and kindred's gold is mortal life also. The body they may kill God's truth is the only thing that, that endures. And we're going to stand upon that truth. Brothers and sisters, may God give us the grace as a people 
in longing for Jesus Christ that we might understand that that is the reason we want to long. Because we want more of Christ, more of our God, and thus that security and that contentment that comes. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful, O Lord, that we, in the words of Thomas Sherman, are an heir to have a heart and a focus that is geared towards the new heavens and the new earth. And the Lord, we know the more that we set our focus upon Christ, the more we set our focus upon you, the more, O Lord, the things of this world, the things that that in the past have dazzled us and allured us and, uh, um, Lord, distracted us, they become more and more dirty. We see them for what they are and they become so much more temporal. God, give us the grace to be a people who in seeking you would genuinely enjoy the benefits that you describe here of repentance. Lord, we know those are ours. May that be the, a motive for, for our young people, for all of us to live a life of service, devotion, where we seek you and you by your grace enable us to find you. God, give us the grace to seek you more than life. Don't let the passing pleasures go. And so to enjoy you in Christ, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.